And welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. What's going on, Nick? What's up, brother? How are you doing, man? I am uh, completely pumped to pick up where we left off. Oh, yeah. With the next two installments of this, I'm going to call it a quadrilogy of Mad Max. Uh, before we get into the episode, let's do some catching up, man. Where, where are you these days? I just got back from uh, Miami. I, I spent 10 days down there, which was really cool, man, because coming from the snow that you got hit with in, mm-hmm. uh, in, mm-hmm. in Denver at that point, I was just, comp- I am a warm weather person, man. Totally. <laughs> If I could live, I live my life even in the snow in freaking flip flops. So if I, you know, if I could live on the equator, I would. Um, so getting down to Miami was awesome because it was hot and humid, just like I like it. So I just got back. Was it spring break while you were there? You know, I missed, I wasn't on, I went to South Beach like one or two times. So I missed all that madness. It was spring break, but it really didn't affect I think that was more at night, and they had to have a curfew, man, at like 8 oh, p.m. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the crazy. The sun's crazy. not even going down yet, and you've got to be back at home. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's wild. Yeah, so it was cool, man. But now I'm back up in uh, northern Florida between in a town called Destin between Panama mm-hmm. City and Pensacola. You know Destin. Yep, yep, yep. Been there once or twice years and years ago. White, white sand beaches and blue, blue, blue water. It's actually really, really cool, except it's pretty friggin' redneck here. It's uh, That's North Florida for you, man. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know what they say about Florida? They're like, the South is really the North. And right. what they mean by that is people from the Northeast, like, you know, New York. And the North is really the South. Because right. where I am is like the deep freaking South. They call it the Redneck Riviera. I used to live pretty near the Okefenokee Swamp growing up, so I know wow. all about that. That North Florida, that's where that's where Florida man resides is North Florida. <laughs> <laughs> it's dude, it's pretty horrifying. I gotta tell you, but but I will say this, man. I'm gonna be kind of elitist. Where the reality is, you get outside of any city in uh, yeah. in, in America, and it doesn't matter where you are. You just kind of truthfully, go, what just happened. Yep. You know, you go to a Walmart, you're like, holy shit, it's like another species, right? Yeah. Uh, Colorado is a blue state. It was like a pretty much a gimme for Joe Biden in this last election. And man, you go anywhere outside of the major cities, it's like Trump country out there still, you know, you still see the signs and all that. Wow. It's such a crazy dichotomy, right? Yeah. It demonstrates the divide in American culture. That's for sure. It's wild, man. It's wild for sure. Anyways, I'm up here and uh, just kind of chilling, waiting for taking care of some uh, issues with passports and all that, getting ready to go to Europe, man. I cannot wait. Oh, wow. I, this is the first I'm hearing about this. What's the itinerary for Europe? Mm, I think I'm going to, we're going to sell the van here. Been traveling in the interstellar spaceship and going to sell it and buy another van over there and build it out and tour the coast of uh, France and Spain and Portugal and uh, have some more adventures. Our scheduling for podcast recording is going to get even crazier. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine, right? How long are you planning on going? I, I, anywhere from, you know, three to four months to forever. 
Oh man, oh. just move, just move. They renounce your American citizenship. No, well, actually, one of the things that I'm working on right now is getting my uh, Italian citizenship. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I'm getting all the paperwork together right now it, because my grandfather was an immigrant oh. and came from um, Italy. He, uh, before my father was born, uh, before he became an American citizen, my father was born. And therefore, my father was really, you know, an Italian citizen um, legally. And so I'm entitled to citizenship. So I'm just getting everything certified and together, all these documents. And uh, I've, I finally, it took me like months to get it all together. And I finally got it together and I'm about to apply and then, uh, then get my citizenship. Do you speak any Italian? Zero. Okay. <laughs> you have American privilege where you could just go anywhere and everybody will speak broken English for you. That's what everyone says. Yeah, <laughs> like, dude, yeah. everyone speaks English over there. Don't worry about it. But I, I want to learn. I mean, if you if you move there for long term, you probably will just by being immersed in it. You know. Well, it, the difficult for difficulty for me is I really think as I've I haven't been there yet, but everything I've heard and what I'm looking for in life is going to be in Portugal. And so that's Portuguese, and I don't know. You know, I'm around Portuguese all the time because of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Right. So, so many of my friends are, are speak Portuguese, but um, I'm, I'm really intrigued by Portugal because um, I can surf. It's as far south as I can get on the continent before I get to Africa, as close to the equator as I can get. And, um, and so it looks like – and it's and super inexpensive. And so it looks like it'll, it could be cool. I mean, we'll see. I don't know, man. I'm playing it by ear. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, the video logs of the and photo logs of all of it. That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm ready for some adventure, man, for sure. So yeah, Radical. but I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying being here, man. I'm enjoy. You know, I try and enjoy wherever I am, and uh, you know, everywhere there's something good. You know, no matter totally. how crazy the place is. So I'm enjoying it. You just got back from freaking. You went to Santa Fe, right? after uh just a couple weeks after i left yeah my wife and i uh did a uh, little weekend trip to santa fe to check it out just for her birthday just we wanted to go somewhere we saw the cave dwellings and uh the drive between denver if you take the scenic route state highway 285 between denver and santa fe it has got to be the most beautiful drive or one of the most beautiful drives in north america it is stupid amazing and how cool were the cave dude the cave dwellings were amazing man it was really it, it really is a trip to see ancient artifacts like that buildings that are you know a thousand years old 1100 years old so rad yeah it, it kind of definitely adds some perspective to your life i'm a stu- i'm a student of history i love history so seeing that stuff in real life is humbling did you go you went through taos to get there right we, we, we drove right by taos we actually have some friends in taos but we just didn't have enough time to stop and hang out unfortunately the river there is amazing we went to the rio grande river i think i posted a video on it and, and went to the hot springs that was cool but what for me, what I loved about it, man, was being in the getting climbing up into those caves. So there are these amazing, like ancient caves where you could see that, you know, a tribe lived there. Mm-hmm. And um, what I kept thinking, man, was how cool would it be at night? There's no light pollution and you're chilling, uh, right? Yeah. You're just totally chilling. And all of a sudden you like see UFOs in the air. That's all I kept thinking about. I'm like, <laughs> it must have been so rad. <laughs> I wonder if those cave dwellers were seeing UFOs back in the day. That's what I was wondering. I was like, yeah, man, sure. I wonder if that happened or, you know, there's been, I've been, you know, kind of catching up on what I've been doing in the interim since we recorded the last one. I've been listening to uh, 
this guy, Jeremy Corbel, uh-huh. who did a documentary like on the Skinwalker Ranch. I'm a, it, it's so fascinated by Skinwalker Ranch um, in Utah that I'm actually writing a series about it that uh, that just got a couple installments just got plugged or just got published by an online literary magazine. And it's called Into the Void. Cool. It's on my uh, Instagram. You can find the link there. But anyways, Jeremy Corbel has been interviewing like pilots, like fighter pilots that have encountered um, UFOs. And I'm, you know, I, from my background, I'm a lawyer. And so right. I'm very skeptical of all of that. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm just like, man, there just continues to be this, these, these leaks that are coming, you know, they just published a story in New York times um, last year that talked about the UFO program and how things are just unexplained. And so I'm like, you know what? It's kind of cool to kind of say it could be, you know, yeah. I don't know. It could be right. I want to believe, you know, <laughs> I'm the same way, you know, I'm the kind of person, I'm an evidence-based person, so I always want, like, I'm extremely skeptical of every claim, always. You know, UFOs are no different. But at the same time, the idea that the universe is as big as it is and we're the only civilization in all the entire universe is equally preposterous to me. You know what I mean? There's there's no way that's true. Yeah. Mathematically speaking, that's that's not a possibility. But the idea that they've come to Earth or that they come to Earth regularly, that I that's where my skepticism begins. I'm like, well, show me the real evidence, you know? I know. I know. It's not to say that the evidence doesn't exist. It's just I, I'm not privy to it if it does. Yeah, it seems it seems to me that there's something more there than we know. And it is this it's I want to there's part of me that's like, OK, then it's some kind of military tech that they're testing sure. uh, that that we just don't know what it, they haven't revealed it yet. But from everything I'm hearing with the fighter pilots, they're just like, there's no way. Right. It defies the laws of physics what these craft are able to do. Certainly nothing that we're even close to. So I find it really cool. So I've been listening to a bunch of Jeremy Corbel's podcasts, and it's, it's cool. cool, man. I'm digging That's it. That's awesome. How about you? What have you been uh, diving into? I've been reading some Nnedi Okorafor, an Afrofuturist writer, uh, reading some of her works lately. Let's see. I just watched Godzilla versus King Kong. Oh, dude, how was it? On the one hand, I really liked it, but on the other hand, my like Godzilla purist insides are like, uh, I don't know. I, I the CGI stuff, like all CGI, bums me out. <laughs> Truthfully, like I'm I'm old that way, I guess. And I don't know if young people have a different opinion or not, but I'm just old enough to be like, give me some practical effects, man. Like yeah. all CGI is, it kills me. Yeah. But overall, I liked it. You know, of the four MonsterVerse movies they've made so far. It's probably my least favorite one, though. Oh, wow. But okay. I like them all. I like them all okay, though. You know what I mean? It's not like I thought any one of them was particularly bad or anything. They all have like a six and a half out of ten approximately for me, you know? So that's not a bad review, honestly. No. Like they're, They were fun. I watched the whole thing. There's some like real wild like hollow earth conspiracy stuff that helps to drive the plot forward. And it makes me roll my eyes. <laughs> If you're going to, you know, say that they're giant monkeys, then you got to have some explanation, you know? Yeah. Where did they come from? Oh, you know what? You know what else I watched? I watched uh, Zack Snyder's uh, cut of uh, Justice League. And for me, I will say I enjoyed it. But caveat, it's broken up into like five, six like chapters almost. Right. Interesting. 
And so what I did, it's four hours long. And so what I did is I would watch a chapter and that would be it. So like, that's a, a good 30, idea. Yeah. Like a, like a series, like I watched 30 minutes. Otherwise you just, there's too much, you get fatigued. It's like, this is yeah. too much. So it was enjoyable, you know, because Justice League was really one of the, I remember being a kid and watching reruns of Justice League on cartoon, you know, and so oh, yeah, it was kind of, kind of nostalgic that way, but it was, it was more enjoyable. I remember trying to watch the first cut and I couldn't even watch it. And so, uh, yeah, Zack, the Zack Snyder DC verse has been pretty darn disappointing as far as I'm concerned. Like they brought him on to try to recapture like the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight grittiness or whatever. Yes. Yeah. And he made it his way. And then the studios were like, no, 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 let's make it more gritty and grim and stuff yeah and plus also i don't i think some of the casting kind of sucks too honestly bat flick is the worst batman i can't yeah. stand ben affleck as batman he's terrible well the editing the editing in this cuts a lot of that you know it, it for, he was able to edit to, to those performances to the point where there were so minimal that it Great. wasn't as bothersome as i remember the first movie being i was like okay yeah the editing is really it saves it in that respect. I will say this for, I did like man of steel in what I liked about man of steel is it was so sci-fi and I was <laughs> like, okay, well at least it's cause I'm not a Superman fan. Man of steel was with Zod, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It was Zod. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not, not, not the Lex Luthor one. What was that? Just Superman returns or whatever. Yeah, or, I can't or Batman versus Superman. Or whatever I was, one it was. He did Lex Luthor. I'm like, what? Yeah. And they also picked like the worst actor to play Luther as well. On top of Luther being like a difficult to get along with character already, like a villain I don't like, just a hokey generic ass villain. I mean, that's my whole deal with Superman and Lex Luthor is like, he's undefeatable, you know, wow, a superhero that has every superpower and is always good all the time. How interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> and, and, and you know, but but I tell you what, that's a good lead in for today, right? Mm-hmm. Where we're going to finish talking about the last two installments of Mad Max. And without question, the one thing, as we spoke about last time, that defines the Mad Max universe is how awesome the freaking villains are. Absolutely. Compared to Lex Luthor, right? Because they're complex, you know what I mean? Yes. So let's jump in now to Mad Max. We're picking up with, and I'm going to let you take this one. We are picking up with, without question for me, the zaniest of the installments, which is Beyond Thunderdome, which is just the weirdest movie ever. Uh, Okay, so Beyond Thunderdome comes out in 1985, uh, and there's a lot of backstory to this movie. The, The studios really wanted a sequel because Road Warrior was a big success here in the States, and they were like immediately like, yeah, get in there and make another one. But the problem is, is that while they were filming this movie, George Miller and Byron Kennedy made the first two movies together. But Byron Kennedy was killed in a helicopter accident right before the filming of this movie began while they were like, scouting locations. No. Yeah. And so George Miller really didn't want to make this movie. Wow. I didn't know that. He basically lost interest in it. Like it was a good like this. Byron Kennedy was a really good friend of his and he had known him for years. And basically, George Miller kind of went into a depression. In truth, George Miller only really directed the action sequences of this movie. And another director, George Ogilvie, is like really the true director of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Wow. Because even though George Miller basically had planned it all out and everything, he went into a depression right before it started. Oh my gosh. So he was killed, Byron was killed while scouting. 
Yeah, in a helicopter crash. I mean, you know, and but one of the big things about filming these movies is they're inherently dangerous in lots and lots of ways. One being the crazy stunts that all these movies have. But two is the fact that they're filmed in these really far-flung locations, like out in the middle of the desert and everything. So getting to and from sets and locations is dangerous all by itself, as proved by the death of Byron Kennedy. So this movie stands out from the rest of the franchise in that, one, George Miller has a reduced role in this one. And two, American studios had a heightened role uh, of like deciding different plot points. Like, for example, Tina Turner was cast in the movie to help gain American interest in the audience. And, you know, to me, even though I personally don't think she does a particularly good job, Tina Turner as auntie entity, her character is still really cool and interesting. Tina Turner is not exactly the world's best actor. Nothing against Tina Turner or anything. Terrific singer and performer, 100%. But not exactly the best actor in the world. Yeah, I, I think it was the weak point. For me, it was the weak point in the entire series. Yeah, she definitely doesn't help. And so the film is really kind of like in two parts. In the first part, Max, he gets dive-bombed by a father and a son in an airplane or a father and a child in an airplane. So there's an airplane in this movie instead of a gy- they just Everything just goes up one notch for every movie that's made. They just always like, oh, we had a gyrocopter in the last one. Well, this time we're going to have an airplane. And he gets dive-bombed and he, he he's knocked off his interceptor. He ends up making it to this town, barely, where it's ruled by two like a like a divided class system where on the top the society is kept alive by the control of this character auntie entity who's played by Tina Turner and but she's sort of a figurehead because the real power rests in the underground of this town where this strange dichotomy of master blaster master and blaster which is a uh, small person and a large dim-witted person who act as a team Dude, this is the coolest, one of the coolest ideas. I love it. And the Master Blaster character is one of the coolest, most underrated villains. I mean, it's two different people, but they do have like a joined, I mean, they basically act as a unit. But the first part of the movie is how Max ends up kind of getting caught in the power struggle between Auntie Entity and the above ground and Master Blaster and the energy producing like workers underground. And that's where the Thunderdome gets put in. And Matt, Max ends up having to fight in this really kind of an interesting fighting arena where you're hooked to the edges of this caged dome by elastic like bungee cables. And you have to like bounce around and grab stuff off the edges and fight each other to the death. And while on the one hand, it's like you said, as zany as you could possibly be, it's also extremely interesting and nothing like that had ever been done in a movie before. The Thunderdome itself, I mean, I personally think – I watched this one again pretty recently, and I thought, you know, this is a, a really interesting movie. No, it's it's crazy. It's like, again, it's – Master Blaster for me is one of the coolest, weirdest ideas uh, that I've ever seen. Imagine this massive dimwit, right, right. <laughs> who doesn't have much of a brain, and he – Riding on his back everywhere is this little dwarf, right? <laughs> Who is the brain? And who's like, like a genius and uh, is yeah. like super smart and manipulative. But okay, so that's the first half of the movie. And then Max leaves this place and wanders out into the desert where he almost dies. And then is discovered by a member of this. This is where the movie, to me, this is where the movie get kind of goes off the rails a little bit because 
all that crazy stuff happens. And then he's discovered by this gang of like children that are living out in the desert by themselves, where at some point a pilot had wrecked this plane full of children and the pilot was killed. And then the children lived on and formed their own society with their own mythos surrounding the plane crash and the dead pilot and kind of turned that him into a deity and worship him sort of like a deity. But one thing that doesn't make sense to me about that is, is that some of the kids are only like, you know, five or six years old. So there's no way that that took place more than five or six years before that. Yeah. Where did the kids come from? Yeah. Where, where, yeah, exactly. What, what's like, where are these kids coming from? Why are there still airliners in the air five years before this? You know, dude, you, it's, it's, it's a freaking genre mashup of like road warrior and Peter Pan's Neverland. Yeah. It's <laughs> like Neverland or, <laughs> or Lord of the flies kind of situation. It's, really strange that they do that isn't to say that those things aren't well imagined like like when you're watching the movie the lore behind it is still done in a george miller type way where the zaniness of it is kind of incorporated into the lore where it's okay that it's zany because it has that mad max lore to it that being said it does still kind of strike me to this day as the weak point in this franchise yeah I totally agree. I totally agree. Even the fighting, for some reason, there's part of me that can't stand when you have like arranged fighting for a, you know, for a cause or some kind of a treasure or whatever it is. After Enter the Dragon, you know what I mean, with Bruce Lee, which (laughs) I thought was the one where it was perfect. After that, it just seems like such a manufactured and forced like trope, like story trope. And to me, it was like, yeah, it's kind of cool. They're on bungees. It's this, this, and this. But of course, they're supposed to fight. You know, uh, Conan. Right. Conan was another one that I loved. Yeah, exactly. That one was like, yeah, that the arena fighting. Sense. He was yeah. bred for that. He was right. bred for it, so it worked. But this is one where Max just kind of fell into it, and now all of a sudden, you have to be a, a, a cage fighter, so to speak. You know right. what I mean? So anytime I see that now in a movie, I'm like, oh gosh, I can't stand it. You know. Um, yeah, it's a weird, weird mashup of a movie. Have you seen um, uh, off topic slightly? But have you seen uh, um, Valhalla Rising? No, no, uh-uh. uh, no. That's a movie that kind of falls into that category, the arena fighting category that you, you, I bet you'd really like. Mark that one down. And that's like it's, okay. about, it's about a Viking who's a um, slave death fighter like a champion slave and basically when different viking communities come across each other they pit their slaves against each other to the death and like you know bet on it as a way to like befriend the other tribe oh wow Wow. Uh, but he's like he's like one of these slaves or whatever but eventually he escapes the situation he's in and ends up accidentally on a boat full of vikings that gets lost in the fog and accidentally drifts all the way to north america (laughs) that sounds crazy and then they're beset by like natives trying to kill them wow yeah it's an intense so it was good oh yeah it's a it's an awesome movie i I think it's kind of an art house film but it's extremely violent definitely has a lot of these sort of like the arena fighting type tropes in it but done pretty well i think all right i'm gonna check it out what what was it again the name of it it's called valhalla rising yeah okay give that one a go i think you'll probably enjoy that one anyway back back to our mad max universe here so you know there there there's definitely some things about this movie that made it kind of like the low point in the franchise and in fact it was the last movie made in the franchise from 1985 to 2015 so there was a 30 year gap between this film and the next sequel in the franchise. Yeah. During which time George Miller, of course, made 
money hand over fist making the Babe movies and the Happy Feet movies. So he he you know he was still doing just fine. Like he rebounded mm-hmm. and you know eventually found his way back to being interested in the franchise again after some time. Here's an interesting piece of tidbit that kind of relates it to sci-fi. Here is that George Miller was given the studio gave him the rights to make this film before his uh, co-producer was killed and you know it caused him to go into a depression. He traded that because he was actually going to direct Contact. Oh wow! In the mid '80s, he was actually attached to Contact, the movie uh, written by Carl Sagan, which was in produ- apparently in pre-production for quite a long time and you know didn't end- eventually ended up getting made like 12 years later by uh, Robert Zemeckis but originally it was going to be a George Miller film so I wonder how it would have turned out as if Contact had been made in the 80s and made by George Miller I, I wonder uh, I wonder what that would have been like I know Contact's one of my favorite movies and I know you're a- love Carl Sagan I love the book too it'd be a really strange Definitely a different take. It's one of those things that's like, you know, what if? What if that had happened instead, you know? <laughs> alternate universe, right? Let's Hopefully we can go to an alter, alternate universe after our simulation ends and see what happens. <laughs> That'd be great for me because I've already seen the Robert Zemeckis one. So now I can see the other one too. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't be one or the other, you know? Okay, so this movie also, besides being the last one made for 30 years, it's also the last one made that stars Mel Gibson. So Mel Gibson, after this, went on to do all his crazy Mel Gibson stuff and then eventually become... He really blew up and then yeah. exploded. Yeah, because after, <laughs> after this one, 1985, I mean, then it was the Lethal Weapon movies. When did the first Lethal Weapon movie? Let's find that out. Yeah, Lethal Weapon. Uh, yeah, we, Lethal Weapon, it? the first one came out in 1987. So it was not long yeah. after this one that he like became Braveheart. Yeah, brave like basically the nineties, the late eighties through the late nineties belonged to, to Mel Gibson. Yeah, he was the biggest star in the world. Yeah, without question. And then he became a director in his own right and made some pretty awesome movies, actually. I don't know if you've ever seen Apocalypto, but that movie kind No, of- a buddy of mine swears by that film. Uh, He's I mean, like, dude, it's one of the best films ever made. I agree. It's a pretty neat movie, man. It kind of in the same vein as Valhalla Rising, too. So if you want to see a oh wow brutal as hell action movie. Subtitled, right? Yeah, it's subtitled. No it's, it's actually – yeah, the whole movie is done in the Inca language or, or I don't actually – forgive me for saying Inca in case that's not correct. No, I, I, I got to see it, man. I, I've heard that. I heard the movie's amazing and – I just have a block on it. I don't know why. Every time I like kind of reach to go watch it's it. It's Mayan, not Incan. So forgive me for that. It's, so it's about the, the height of Mayan culture when there's like human sacrifices going around, going on. And like oh, wow. this uh, one kid in a small jungle community ends up being captured by the temple guards and stuff and like being set to be sacrificed and, you know, his struggle to survive. And the whole thing is in that language, like in a native language. And it is gritty as crap man it is one of the most violent movies i have ever seen in my entire life so you know mel gibson wow. he there was a moment when he was riding high but then uh, you know obviously all the stuff came out of him being with all the anti-semitic rantings and like wife abuse or you know verbal abuse and mental abuse and all that stuff so you know fame gets to people that's for sure he he exploded and then imploded it totally <laughs> but now but now he's the fat man apparently in the um action christmas movie that came out this past year oh okay he plays santa out for revenge <laughs> i haven't seen that one but you know he also made like the highest grossing rated r movie of all or at least for a long time he made the passion of the christ and that was like the highest grossing rated r movie for years dude he probably made because no one would finance it he financed it he 
probably made a billion dollars. Yeah, he made so much money. Just, you know, I guess when you're at, when you've got that much money, you're like, yeah, I'll just uh, I'll be I'll become a complete lunatic. I'll let my id just go. Yeah, just be just be a nut job. <laughs> you know what though? I, I will say the digressions that we have had in speaking about this movie, I think, speak more about the movie itself and how both of us are like, eh. It's, it's okay. It's yeah. something you probably should watch. Yeah, if you're going to watch the franchise, don't skip this movie. Definitely don't skip the movie. There's there's gold in those hills, as they used to say. But it's definitely the weakest entry into the franchise. I think that's pretty much universally agreed upon. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was mostly directed by George Ogilvy and not George Moore. I, I didn't know that, and now that all makes sense. Him backing away and pulling away, it probably would have been a very different movie. One would wonder what it would be like had he had been in the right mental state to actually direct this movie okay so after this it's also kind of like poo-pooed a little bit by critics and it doesn't do as well as the previous movie budget to box office so george miller kind of shrinks away from the franchise for like we said three decades and then it's not until like 2010 or so that he starts trying to make another movie when this happens like 25 years later when he starts getting ready to make another one he actually wants mel gibson to reprise the role of max and for a while they talk about him being max again but he's attached to the project, actually. But as time goes on and the movie still hasn't been made, while that's happening, you know, from 2000 and maybe five, 2005 or so, when the very first like whispers of this movie being made start happening. Well, it, actually, a little bit of trivia. This movie, they attempted to shoot this movie and then 9-11 happened. Oh, is that right? Yeah. 9-11 happened and it just kind of, they had to shelve it. Oh, interesting. It wasn't until after the success of Happy Feet that he was like, okay. I can do whatever I want now. <laughs> yeah, I can do whatever I want now. I've got this this leeway to do this again, which is crazy. I didn't realize it went back quite that far. I knew that it was in pre-production for quite a while and that Mel Gibson was attached to it for a long time. But by the time they actually got around to filming it, one, Mel Gibson had gotten that much older. And two, Mel Gibson was entirely made of money and you know, getting him to do his own stunts and all this stuff that requires you to make this movie was probably not in the cards for somebody who's that valuable. If you're worth $350 million, you're probably not going to want to spend the summer out in the desert doing your own car stunts, you know? Yeah, and he was he was kind of older though too, man. I thought that for me, like the cast of this movie is freaking insane. Yeah, it's, right? it's amazing. It's all, I guess... If anything good came out of 9-11, and trust me, I'm not saying that I think anything good came out of 9-11, <laughs> but if anything did come, it's that this movie got delayed so that they had to recast the part as Tom Hardy. Because yeah. who could possibly – I mean his his performance in this movie – and talk about an understated performance, man. Like he might have less than 16 lines in this movie. He might have 10 or 12 lines in the entire movie, and almost all of them are like two or three words. Another freaking silent film. Mm -hmm. I mean – this is this is why I think you're you hit on something is that this is a return to form for George Miller, whereas, like you said, the third one he was absent on. And what was it? It was. Uh, but he he once again almost reprised. This is why it's so important to watch Road Warrior if you like Fury Road. Because the similarities are unfrickin' believable. Absolutely. Right? It pulls elements from the Road Warrior, of course. And it also pulls elements from the third movie, Thunderdome. Because the very last thing that happens Thunderdome after the little kids camp, there's another epic 
epic chase scene where there's a train being followed by all these pursuit vehicles. And that is basically the, I guess, the warm up for what happens in Fury Road. Yeah. If nothing else, if you don't watch the whole Thunderdome, watch the last 20 minutes of Thunderdome at least, because it's as impressive of an action sequence as there is in any movie yeah it's really dope but but again though you have the the you know number four fury road has the convoy so does road war right road war's got that convoy and you even have the acrobatics with those big sticks Mm -hmm. and then they use that in road war it's the first time we've seen it and i remember watching road war and i just was like holy shit man he is pulling from that that second movie so much. So in a lot of ways, Fury Road basically pulls the most interesting parts from the original trilogy and reinvents them bigger and better. And one of the great things it does that the original trilogy does is have so many interesting peripheral characters. First of all, one of the greatest villains ever and Hugh Keysburn, who played the toe cutter in the original film, returns to the franchise to play Emerton Joe in Fury Road. And Emerton Joe is, without a question, one of the scariest villains ever. I think that's pretty well agreed upon. And to come back into a franchise and make a completely different villain, totally unlike the toe cutter, and be as memorable and interesting speaks volumes to that actor who, again, as we said in last episode, died recently. So R.I.P to a great one. Then there's also Furiosa, who has got to be possibly one of the greatest female action heroes of all time. Played by my favorite female actor, Charlize Theron. She freaking kills it. Absolutely crushes it in this movie. The Imperator Furiosa is so smart and strong and cool and fearless. And here, there's a lot of blowback for this movie because... You know, I post about the Bad Max franchise all the time, and anytime I post about Fury Road, inevitably, inevitably, there's some turd that's like, oh, well, let's make a Mad Max movie that's actually about Mad Max, implying that because there's a female character with a large part in the movie, that it's an inferior movie because, you know, Furiosa's in it. It's not about Max, even though it's totally about Max. He's in like every single scene. Yeah. The um, nerd culture, I mean, listen, I'm obviously a nerd. I run a science fiction podcast and publish a science fiction (laughs) magazine. So obviously I accept that title. But the part of nerddom that's also misogynist is got to be the worst part of nerddom. The two things don't belong together. There's no reason why liking Mad Max movies or liking Star Trek or liking whatever should go hand in hand with hating women. And unfortunately, there's this huge subculture. And I know lots of lady listeners, however many of those we have, will nod their heads. And I'm sure we'll get some misogynists listening to this podcast and being like, oh, you know, SJW, Mr. Cuck or whatever. And, you know, I'm just be honest with you guys. Fuck you. If that's how you feel and you you really think that pointing out the idiocy of that is a problem, go listen to another podcast, dude. You're wrong. You're 100% wrong. No, I love strong female characters. Yeah, strong female characters are one of the best parts of science fiction, whether it be Ellen Ripley, you know, whether it be Furiosa, whether it be Linda Hamilton in Terminator. Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor, exactly. You know, like it's as much a part of the genre as a strong male character. If not more. If not more. If not more. You're talking about Terminator and Alien are like the biggest sci-fi movies ever. And Fury Road's a huge example of that too. And, you know, uh, we just talked about Contact, the main character in Contact's a woman. There should be no sexism in science fiction. No. I tell you what, and you bring up a really good point. One of the things that I loved about Fury Road was that I was more at this point interested 
in the universe. Absolutely. That Mad Max existed within. Yes. Than I was in the character of Mad Max. Absolutely. Because let's face it, we already had freaking three. We had three movies. And this movie is still about him. You know what I mean? Like he is still the main character of this movie. Yeah. And as much as most people say it's about Furiosa, it's about Max meeting Furiosa and helping her. Yeah. It really is about Mad Max. But yeah, I agree completely about how there's so much universe there implied and written in and just demonstrated through the costumes and the names of the characters and all this unexplored lore dude that we don't see i tell you what it, this i think is a bookend on his career on george miller and his evolution as a director and creator i think mad max and fury road are the most fascinating study in the, his evolution as a storyteller yes i, I was such a fan i'm such a fan of fury road that i i bought the big coffee table book on the making of oh man it's so badass dude. Oh, the original <laughs> artwork what's crazy about fury road is that they didn't write a script there's no right? screenplay for it no it's all storyboard he's like we are going to just take that concept of of imagery of a silent film and we're going to do it on steroids because mm. we have the money now and dude they spared no expense but creatively they were just unshackled from the written word you know and so you've just got image after image on these storyboards which are in the coffee table book that are just you're just like holy shit and it freaking shows that it's like non-stop an assault of, of action coupled with amazing cinematography and set design. And how about the opening sequence? Oh, man. When he's captured and then he it has tries to, to escape. escape. Oh, my God. It's incredible. <laughs> Before the movie even starts, it's like the it's like a cold opening sequence yeah. to the movie. And uh, it is so intense. It sets the score for the whole movie because you see that he's haunted by the death of – people he had tried to help in the past or had been associated with in the past, which is kind of like a loose allusion to the previous films in the franchise about how he had yeah. you know, been part of these different groups and things had gone to hell anyway. His daughter died. His, his wife died. I mean, he's haunted by all these people that have died. No matter what he's done and no matter how much of a hero he is, people have died on his watch, innocent people. And so he is the ultimate freaking like – dark anti-hero you know man with no name right absolutely and even more so in this movie there's a there's a fan theory going around that max as portrayed by tom hardy is actually the grown-up version of the kid from the second mad max movie the boomerang wow that's so cool man and then he just grew up and adopted the max persona because wow. the uh, that original max had been such an important part of his life during the the events of the second movie i'm adopting that i believe it yeah yeah sure <laughs> that why, is not? Such a cool why not you know yeah that's right okay so with each subsequent movie they expand upon the universe and part of that is that it gets more and more and more removed from our current reality. And one of the great things about the franchise is that all of these things are set into motion by this gas crisis. And it ends up getting as far 
removed from our current reality because of just one little thing happening, a gas crisis happening, we end up here at the events of Fury Road where everything is completely, the world itself is ruined. Water everywhere is toxic. There's almost no clean water. The premise of this movie is that a warlord has built a society over like the last remaining source of clean water that anybody knows of out in the desert and has built a citadel over it and it runs an entire society. And nearby, there is another society that makes ammunition only. And there's another society nearby that produces gasoline. And those three things are apparently all that's necessary for the world to continue the way it does in Fury Road, which is to say in a real screwed up, super, super, super hostile and harsh reality. Yeah. So Max gets dragged into this situation as a blood bag, which is basically all he does is exist as a portable blood transfusion for one of Immortan Joe's foot soldiers who is dying of cancer, which is certainly brought on by radiation, Mm -hmm. one would think. And that's another great character, Nux. Yeah, dude, Nux is is so cool because – He's like kind of weak, yes. but his will and his belief in this like cult, like because this the, the, the fourth one really hits home with this like, listen, man, when shit hits the road, it's going to be, you think QAnon is a cult, yeah. a big cult, you know what I mean? People are going to flock. I mean, we're such, I, I was telling someone else this, I'm like, you know, one of the things that I, I think in the last year that I've realized is that human beings more than anything else want to believe something mm-hmm. to distract them from their own existential freaking nightmare yeah. that they'll just buy into any cult. And I'm like, and this is, he's again, Miller just hit it. He's like, this is what's going to happen, man. And this kid is a cult member, yeah. right? Nicholas Holt is the name of the actor uh, who's the little boy in About a Boy all grown <sighs> up. Yeah. And he plays Nux, who is a war boy, basically a foot soldier for Emerton Joe, attempting to get Furiosa back after she escapes. And he goes through possibly the greatest character arc of any character in any movie I've ever seen. Right? From like cult member. Entirely to- indoctrinated, entirely devoted to the cult, to um, being a self-minded hero, like a perfectly – conscious, perfectly, fully self-realized hero. You know what, dude? You know what? You just hit it on the head. He's the hero of the movie. He I really is. That. He really is. Because I mean, he's the one with the character, the hero arc. Yeah, he's the, not the not Furiosa or or Mad Max. Furiosa and Max are both heroes to start with. You know what I mean? They're both in their own anti-heroes. They're both anti-heroes. Yeah, yeah. they're both anti-heroes in their own way. In that they do heroic things, but really to serve their own purposes. Max is, helps the girls out once he gets involved. He doesn't want any part of it at first and just tries to get away. Just like he does in every other Mad Max movie, like we've talked about. And Furiosa is just trying to help her friends, you know, the the women that she knows. You know what I mean? And she doesn't give a good goddamn about Max at first. But both of them basically stay true to their goals throughout, although Max does, you know, relent and helps them out the way Max does in all of the movies. But Nux goes from being a straight up bad guy to a straight up good guy over the course of the film. And it's such a beautiful, well-constructed character arc. If it doesn't choke you up, when you watch this movie, you are heartless. <laughs> yeah, and, and and done with so little dialogue. Yeah, and done with almost no dialogue. Um, another great thing about the dialogues in these movies, and we talked about how there were no real uh, script for this movie, but some of the dialogue that gets in there is so – one of the great things about the dialogue in these movies is that subtle little things 
are in the dialogue that make you realize the expansiveness of the universe. One of the great things is he says that there'll be McFeasting in Valhalla, implying that in this distant future, the idea of McDonald's as the greatest feast there ever was still lingers. Ah, I didn't even catch that. There's a, there's a bunch of other little, <laughs> little things like that too throughout and how everybody had a show back in the day. He talks about how once everybody had a show, everybody who was alive had a show. And that's how it is. You know, everybody has a channel, at least. They have an Instagram uh, or a podcast and everything. Wow. To these people in this far-flung future, that's all like myth now. Yeah. yeah. Like e- McDonald's is a thing of myth. Just like – Now I got to watch it again. Valhalla <laughs> is. You know what I mean? And that's one of the great yeah. things I like about it is because the things that are obvious reality to us now – get mixed in with myth in this far future because they have no way to prove that there was ever a McDonald's. How would these people who live out in this like barren wasteland know anything about a McDonald's? You know, they, there was never been a one around in their lifetime. Yeah, water. They can't even get water. They can't even get water. You know, water is so scarce, much less thinking about, you know, it's like you have to imagine in a world like this, like if, if we were to tell someone, yeah, dude, and we used to go into a grocery store and there would be 50 types of cereal, all different colors and all different, you know, they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Now they'd be like, what cereal? And that's part of what living in this really, really, really like post-capitalist society that we live in now, it really makes this lore easy to believe. It makes you go, oh yeah, if society did collapse, how would they view the actions of society now? You know, would it be this kind of strange religious mythos and that's one of the greatest things about the lore of mad max is this is that he works in these like small almost difficult to notice details yeah i i didn't even realize that i'm gonna go back and watch it now again there's a couple of other little things like that but i can't remember them off the top of my head but pay attention especially to the things nux says okay because he says a few things like that because he's the most devout member of the cult you know what I mean? So all the cult stuff com- basically comes from his mouth. Well, I tell you, if I, I, I'm not going to watch it again unless I can find and I have not been able to find it. But George Miller originally wanted to shoot this in black and white. Right. And they released it in black and white. And I haven't. It might be on Amazon. It's called uh, the, the black and chrome version. <sighs> I can't. I love black and white photography. Oh, I, me too. When I was shooting a lot and for my last book, almost all of it was black and white. I love black and white. So, yeah, I'm going to find that. Um, but, dude, the the action scenes in this movie. Yes. Were, <laughs> oh, my gosh. It, and it was relentless. And one of the things that I loved about it was that he continued with the zaniness of the characters like you have that character when they're chasing you know the convoy or they're chasing the rig with furiosa's driving um and they've got like this dude playing guitar right with flames coming out and a giant wall of speakers and a giant wall of speakers you're like no that you can't do that but for some reason this time as opposed to thunderdome he was able to keep the tone yeah. So this it didn't interrupt the tone. Whereas in Thunderdome, they lost the t- the gritty tone, and it just became kind of farcical. Okay. So here's the thing. Okay, a lot of people, uh, the Doof Warrior is the name of that character, who by the way actually plays the guitar scene in the movie, and it is the audio you hear during those things. The the oh my the guitar rig that you see is producing the audio you hear in the movie. Uh, you know, obviously recorded separately and overlaid. That's rad. Yeah. So there's that. 
the practical effects in this movie, that's what makes this movie so great is they came back to where it's mostly practical effects. There is definitely some CGI, but mostly practical effects. Okay, so a lot of people are like, okay, they're going off to war and they're bringing this wall of speakers with them. Consider this. How many armies travel without an army band with them, without a bugle player or a drummer? Yeah, with the drums, I think, in freaking Braveheart, right? How is it any different? It isn't. Yeah. That's, the, that's the point, is that the warlords need to exhibit power and part of how they do that is by having not necessarily military necessary things there with them while they do these things. It's almost like in the 300 uh, Xerxes with all of his gold jewelry and all of his handmaidens and dancers and everything around him. That's so rad. <laughs> it's so cool. The warlord yeah. is not measured just by his war prowess, but also by all of the excesses that surround him. Yeah. And that's something that George Miller, I think, nailed right on the head, is that these crazy excesses, do, they paint a picture of a more fearsome warlord to me. Yeah, because because I think the, the, the cult leader understands, is self-aware enough to understand I need to inspire. Right. You know, with this almost like I need to be portrayed. Dude, even in England you know, where the queen is like portraying herself as being almost a deity. Right. You know, and that's in recent, recent history mm -hmm. in, in that sense. So, you know, this is not something that is uncommon. In fact, it is the way it goes. Right. Absolutely. And that's when people use that criticism against this movie. I tend to be like, I don't really see it that way. I, I really don't. I really think that's realistic almost in a way. It, just the same way that all of these huge gasoline burning engines are realistic because when gasoline is the commodity you need, having vehicles that burn a bunch of gasoline is a symbol of power. It's kind of like that now. God, yes, it is. You know, in an era when gas is seen as a non-renewable resource, finally, it became fashionable to own a fucking Hummer, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's wild, isn't it? It's so, the human psyche. And that's what I love about great, you know, literature or great sci-fi movies is that it delves into that part of ourselves where you're like, that's true. That is freaking true. That is exactly how we are. We are cult members. We are, you know what I mean? It's so right. cool, man. And, you know, we all get trapped in our own different versions of the cult, you know what I mean? But uh, George Miller's commentary on capitalist society is not lost, you know, like it's obvious when you watch these movies that he's he's poking at that. Yeah. So in my opinion, even though I like all three of the first Mad Max movies, I, I'll go ahead and say it that I think this is the best Mad Max movie by kind of a lot. A lot. Yeah. Not just for the plot, which I think is the most superior of all four of the plots. It's also visually Speaking heads and shoulders above the rest, it helps that it was made 30 years later and with a huge budget. Also, the acting is another level. It's in a higher level of acting than previously reached in any of the other movies, except the first movie has some really excellent acting in it, too. I think the acting in the first movie kind of helped make the first movie so great. Yeah. So favorite scenes for me, without question, was when they went into the sandstorm. For me, it was like it, it was it was kind of a genius idea from a filmmaking standpoint because they're in the middle of the desert. Right. Right. How do we change up, you know, this scenery so visually we get something that looks very different for the audience? And that was insane. Yes. When they went into the sandstorm and the lightning and the oh, my gosh, and it turns blue and then you see that freaking tree. <laughs> it's just a masterclass in freaking cinematography and set design. I couldn't even believe it. 
there are countless incredible scenes in this movie. The cinematography is so unbelievable. The final battle convoy with the Lancers, the guys up on the poles, picking people out of cars, all of that is so unreal. My favorite scene in the movie is there's a scene when Max is using the rifle to try to shoot a target far off and he's trying, he's trying and he's missing. And right behind him, Furiosa is just standing there and she, on the one hand, you could tell that she wants to be like, let me do it. But on the other hand, she knows that it's a man's world and that she doesn't know Max. And then Max would be like, you know, backhander or something like that. And then Max turns around and sees the situation she's in. And without saying a word, he just hands her the rifle and is like, you take the shot. And he even uses his shoulder as a place to steady the rifle to take the shot. And I think that's such a great demonstration of Max's character because Max isn't about being proud. Max is about being practical. Yeah. You know, and if he's like, oh, she's probably a better shot than I am. He's like, okay, my pride doesn't get in the way of me making this decision at all. And that to me was, I mean, it's just a small, tiny, tiny little part of the movie. But to me, it's the scene that every time I see it, I'm like, man, I love Max so much more now that he made that decision. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. That's such a good point, man. He has no, it's, it's cool because he doesn't, you know, he's the anti-hero in the sense that he doesn't want to be the hero. You know, exactly. He never wants to be the hero. He just yeah. keeps finding himself in, this in these situation. situations. Yeah. Yep. Such such a good one, man. Such a freaking great one. So, what's what's on the horizon now for for the Mad Max franchise? There have been reports that there are several sequels in the works. The two or three more films in the works. The one that apparently had the most development is a movie called The Wasteland, and that is going to be a prequel about Furiosa, which has right now attached to it Anya Taylor-Joy, who uh, is famous for The Witch and The Queen's Gambit and a number of other movies, some M. Night Shyamalan movies. So she is supposed to play a young Furiosa. And that movie also has Chris Hemsworth attached to it, although we don't know what part he's going to play. I hope he plays a young Emerton Joe, but I don't know yet. Or, you know, none of this is official yet either. Wow, dude. There's also supposed to be another Mad Max movie starring Tom Hardy in development as well. Again, none of this is official yet, so we don't know yet. Part of the problem is that these movies are extremely physically rigorous to make, and... George Miller's old, right? He's old. He's an old man now. George Miller is... Let's see here. It's got to be 75, I would guess. 76. Ooh, he's 76 I was years close. old. I was close. He's 76 years old now. So, you know, he's not a young man anymore. So going out into the middle of the desert and filming these things is becoming harder and harder, I would think. But he still wants to do it. These are the projects on his docket. And, you know, if that's what he wants to make, you know that they'll come out great. It seems like, at least for now, that the Mad Max franchise is in good hands, still in George Miller's hands. And that we're at least going to get one more movie out of the deal, possibly some more, you know, if, you know, knocking on wood here, here's to George Miller's continued good health. Yeah, I think I think he set such a good template with uh, Fury Road that hopefully even if someone else was to take over, which I want to see him do one more. Um, yeah. And I can't imagine he would do any more than that himself. But I think that template for the raw action silent film has been set. Hopefully that'll spur like multiple movies in this franchise. Yeah. And even if another director does take over eventually, depending on who that director is, you know, I still think there's hope for a franchise beyond George Miller as well. Supposing they pick the correct directors and the, you know, all that, but yeah. we'll see. I can't wait. I'm stoked. All right, man. That was a good one. That was a, absolutely. Uh, 
that was one of the coolest franchises. And uh, what do we get? What are we gonna do next, bro? Uh, you know, I think um, we'll have to. You know, since we talk so much about strong women in this episode, how would you like to do a women in science fiction episode? Oh, that would be really cool. We could do women writers and women characters. You know, I think you know, as two guys, it's always it's just us two guys always telling the story. So, you know, it might be nice to concentrate on women and give them a, the spotlight here. Oh, that a would little be bit. so cool. Well, one of my some of my favorite writers, sci-fi writers, as far as novels, Ursula K. Le Guin and Margaret sure. Margaret Atwood. Oh yeah, just uh, they're my faves, so I love it. That would and we be can, great. Then we could add a number. We could add a number of other ones. I'd like I said, I'm just now starting to read some in nitty uh, core four books, and you know, so far I'm enjoying that. And Octavia Butler and Andre uh, Norton and Mary Shelley, who had basically invented science fiction. Um, so there's a lot of to discuss. Plus, awesome characters. So. Maybe we'll make that the next one, maybe. Let's do it. No, let's just challenge ourselves and do it. I'm stoked. We're doing it. That's the next one. <laughs> so stay tuned, guys. That's what's coming up next. All right, y'all. Take care. That was awesome, bro. Until next time. Late. Take easy, guys. Bye. If you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds-related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Thank you.